Hey, welcome to Transform Your Workplace. It's your host, Brandon Laws. Today's episode is brought to you by Zenium HR. The demands of HR and payroll are endless. That's why Zenium provides a complete solution for both. So you can focus on what you do best, which is growing your business. Learn more about Zenium's complete HR plus payroll solution or custom HR solutions at zeniumhr.com. Okay, today's episode features guests Kelsey Pitlick and Rachel Bauer of Guild Collective. In a world where organizations are really striving to make an impact and implement effective diversity, equity, inclusion practices, today's episode explores why it's essential for leaders to acknowledge and address disparities when it comes to gender. So I had a great conversation with both Kelsey and Rachel, and they shed light on the fact that women are, are still leaving companies at an alarming rate post-pandemic, largely due to lack of supportive workplace practices and policies. So listen to today's episode. You'll get lots of great tips and ideas for how you can make your workplace more inclusive when it comes to gender. Make sure to reach out to me. I'm on LinkedIn and Instagram. And make sure to connect with Kelsey and Rachel. Enjoy today's episode. Rachel, Kelsey, it is a pleasure to have you on Transforming Workplace. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having us. Great to be here. Yes, thank you so much. So we've talked a lot on this show about diversity, equity, inclusion programs, and we've touched on gender inclusion topics, but just a little bit in, in maybe a couple of the episodes. So like, let's just kind of back up at a high level in this landscape today, as a lot of organizations are trying to implement diversity, equity, inclusion practices, why do you think it's crucial for leaders to design and implement effective gender inclusion practices within those programs? So I think that one of the big things that we look at is the experiences that women are having in the workplace and some of the indicators or some of the trends that we see that kind of tell us whether women are having a better or worse experience. So a few years ago during the pandemic, we were seeing women leaving the workforce at staggering rates. Um, they were leaving because they were burned out, because they had childcare responsibilities, and they were essentially being forced out or being forced to take a step back, maybe go part-time or leave completely. But what we're seeing more recently in the past year or so is that women are still leaving companies. But what I always say is they're leaving your company. They're leaving your company if you don't have supportive workplace practices, if you don't have policies in place, if you have said, oh, we're going to try to recruit more women into the organization, but we're not actually going to do anything to support them once they're there. So what we've been seeing more and more is that women are leaving companies to go elsewhere. They're not being retained by organizations. And so I think that's one of the really big keys or one of the big reasons why companies need to be paying attention to this. So I touched on a few of the things, but you know, those policies, flexible work policies, 
supportive managers that can really drive their career advancement. And then also looking at things like microaggressions or how women are actually being treated in those day-to-day interactions in the workplace as well. All of those can kind of lead to that desire to look elsewhere for women. I had read recently, and I think I saw it on LinkedIn, but that there was some law that maybe wasn't extended for funding in daycares and that they they predict that women could be exiting the workplace because of childcare issues. Are you, have you heard anything like that recently? Yes. Yeah. This idea of the childcare cliff. So the funding for childcare centers is going to lead to a ton of childcare centers closing down, which also means childcare providers are losing their employment, but it also puts all of the working parents that have children going to those childcare centers in a really, really difficult position. It's kind of, yeah, it's definitely scary to think about. We might be back at that point that we were in 2020 where everybody was leaving the workforce because every daycare was closed. All childcare providers were um, suddenly gone and and people were finding it really difficult to have their full-time job and their kids in the next room. And that's why it's important for organizations to realize and take into account gender inclusion practices, right? Like that's just one example of a situation that an employee might run across where they have to care for their children. And there might be a whole host of other reasons why leaders need to really pay attention, right? So what are some traits that leaders need to have in order to recognize and genuinely foster gender equity in the workplace? So I feel like there's there's one trait that is probably the biggest driver of this. And I always hesitate when I start to talk about it because it's a soft skill and people don't like to be told that the trait that they really need is a soft skill, but it's empathy. And that sounds so simple. It's you know simple to describe it, but to actually put it into practice, I find that you know, with the companies that we've worked with, and especially, you know, kind of thinking about that leader, putting themselves in the shoes of that entry or even early mid-level employee, the people who are just to use that daycare law as an example, most likely going to be doing the math on what makes the most sense for me to, do I hire a private childcare practitioner? Will I make enough money to offset that cost, right? So when it comes to actually motivating change, you know, to interrupt bias or to actually implement systems that promote a more equitable workplace for gender or any underrepresented person, it's empathy, right? So the organizational leadership has to have that light bulb moment of discovering what it actually feels like. And I mean that, you know, that feeling, which again, is it's hard to try to progress in their organization as a woman, as a mom, as a, a person of color, a woman of color, especially, you know, an underrepresented person of any kind. So a great example of this is, and this is something that I don't know, you know, early in our career in our business, Kelsey and I went, you know, obviously before a lot of these conferences became virtual, I remember sitting in so many conference rooms of big diversity, equity, and inclusion conferences. And there was always, you know, sort of a high career level man at a gender inclusion portion of the conference saying, I just didn't realize how big of an issue that X, Y, or Z still was until my daughter entered the workforce. You know, I didn't realize, I distinctly remember a a man talking about, you know, my daughter told me a story of pumping in a bathroom stall in her office 
and you know how jarring that that was for them to realize oh we aren't necessarily putting these supportive practices in place but also to have that personal connection where you know we were actually able to feel what that must have felt like in that moment to be mortified by having to do something like that or receive a microaggression of any kind really it's really once they're able to have that light sparking that that fire sparking moment of of empathy that you become more receptive to making intentional and transformative change that's going to impact your career progression and the experiences of your employees and especially for women so really getting to know those employees even if you can't know all of them on a personal level understanding the the barriers that exist and the challenges that your employees are facing that's really the best way to move towards making that actionable change Rachel, I think for empathy, some people just, it's intuitive for them. Like maybe they're kind of born with uh, empathy and compassionate heart for others. They need to learn that skill. And I think it's a, it's a big hurdle for, for many people who just don't practice empathy on a regular basis. And if we're trying to bring leaders along and of course the entire organization. So we're bought into this, like, let's seek to understand the other point of view and, and some of those things you just talked about. How do we develop that muscle? How do are there questions that we ask as leaders? Are there activities that we can do? Do we just practice empathy and understanding more? Like what give me some yeah. tips or how do we build that? Yes. Okay. So yes. First and foremost something that we practice a lot. This is like a simple question that any person can be asking themselves. You don't have to be a leader of an organization or an executive or anything is really asking yourself on a daily basis, just why might the opposite of what I think be true, right? So first and foremost, kind of driving yourself back to that question. That's any sort of bias shift that you want to make. I always try to ask myself that question a million times a day. One option to answer your question, some things, some exercises that we could do to practice empathy. We could like wait for everyone's daughter to enter the workforce. Um, So of course that's too little and too, too late. We know. So like specifically looking at gender equity, I'm sure that you're familiar with the women in the workplace report that Lena and McKinsey have been doing for I think five years, six years. I don't know exactly how long, but every year the study starts out with a corporate pipeline. And every year we see that drop off in representation from entry level to manager being the steepest drop off. And so in my opinion, we need to be practicing this muscle of empathy well before we get to that level of leadership. We need to be thinking about it, you know, at that entry level. So there are great tools that exist and there are probably things in individual communities as well. I know there are where I live, but one tool that we really like is, and we can send the links for this, it's an open source platform. It's a game, although game is kind of a fun word for it, but it's a game called Killing Me Softly, which is a choose your own adventure type online experience. And you can kind of go through and experience microaggressions through this virtual um, simulation of sorts. So that's really eye-opening. Depending on the industry that you're in, Spent is a digital poverty simulation that underscores the challenges and complexities of living with poverty. If you're in an industry that is employing a lot of low-income women, that's a really valuable practice. And honestly, I think every human being should, should go through it. But we also have at Guild Collective, we have the Gender Inequity Simulator, which we created sort of as a response to 
this need for empathy, which is, you know, after years of working with companies and realizing that it really is this human shift that we need to make, we identified this gap in traditional bias and DEI trainings where, you know, we set out to create an experience where organizational leaders, mid-level managers is who we initially created it for, but we have an individual contributor experience as well. You can kind of be put in the shoes of someone else. So it's an interactive training where, you know, you get a persona and you get to experience what workplace progression or lack of progression might look like for a working mom or an entry-level woman of color. Um, or someone with, you know, there's so many different intersectional ways that we interconnect and overlap our, our diverse identities. So we try to embed as many of those as possible, really kind of giving as close as we possibly can that experience of walking in someone else's shoes, thinking about all of the different things that women and again, women with diverse identities have to think about on a daily basis to try to give that experience. And we've seen a lot of success with it of what it might actually feel like to live day in and day out working for an organization, identifying differently than, than you do in, in real life, right? So we know that that empathy is that is that spark that's going to drive change. But we also see that it's missing in a lot of workplace training experiences because it is that soft skill, right? It's not you know, necessarily the thing that we can point to on a bar graph and say, oh, we've seen this big of a shift, right? So I'm curious for you, have you seen, you know, or, you know, the guests that you've interviewed or in your experiences or network, you know, have you seen this shift towards people wanting to grow their empathy muscle, like you said? And if so, you know, how so, yeah. right? Is it something you're hearing more about? I think it's, I mean, that's kind of why I asked the question in the first place. I think the intention is there. They're like well-intended around their, not only DEI practices, but the stretching the empathy muscle. I think they just at least the people I've talked to, and if they're consultants, they, maybe they're working with other organizations who are trying to work on this, but they just don't know how. Or they at least, maybe they do a training or maybe do, do a couple different company-wide trainings, but it doesn't stick and they don't embed it into their other practices and that's why it doesn't stick. So that's why I bring it up. I feel like a mental shift needs to happen amongst leaders and managers to really get buy-in and the constant skill building of empathy and just overall buy-in to DEI practices. So I don't know if like you can piggyback off that, but that's what I'm hearing from my side. I think that buy-in is really difficult right now. Um, and true buy-in is really difficult right now. Mm. You know, a lot of what we've been seeing kind of from a trend perspective, especially this year, is that there's maybe an increased resistance or there's been a feeling of, okay, we did too much too fast. And now people are kind of pushing back on the idea of, okay, enough with the diversity trainings, you know, enough with a focus on diversity and inclusion. And there's been sort of this, this pushback or this resistance that can be scary for leaders, I would say, kind of, okay, I thought that I was doing the right thing. And, and while the whole tide was moving this way, you know, 2020, after George Floyd's murder, a lot of companies were bringing on diversity and inclusion leaders within the organizations, the chief diversity officer, when it felt like everyone was asking for it, it was an easier thing to say, yes, we're going to do that too. But then at this first moment of resistance, there's, you know, a question of, okay, well, how bottom am I actually? Is this something that we're going to continue moving forward with and have embedded in our company culture? Or was I really just checking the box? 
And someone that I was talking to recently said, you know, I think that we were at a place where things were just so upside down during, you know, the peak of, of the pandemic that all of our habits and all of the comfort that we had was already sort of distorted out of place. So we were more open to making some of these other changes. And now that things have settled a bit or people are kind of getting back to normal or their new normal, they just want things to go back to the way that they were, even if they didn't necessarily like the way that they were. It's just kind of we're reverting back to that place of comfort and it's making it hard to get to that place of buy-in. And I think that's another reason why we need to have this shift in terms of, it's almost a shift of a worldview. It's a shift of really understanding what another person is going through to say, yes, this is something I'm going to prioritize as a leader. I'm going to champion it. I'm going to dedicate monetary resources. I'm going to dedicate my employees' time resources to it. And it needs to be that larger, that larger mindset and worldview shift along the way. Kelsey, that's a, I think it's a really good point you're making because like, you know, during the pandemic, after the, you know, George Floyd incident, people were already so uncomfortable and uneasy that they're willing to have these harder conversations about DEI efforts and really seeking to understand. Whereas like now things have kind of stabilized, economy's sort of back on track. We haven't had any major issues lately that have been like blowing up the media. Maybe people are back to normal business as usual comfortable not willing to have these conversations because they're uncomfortable but that's how we grow so (laughs) i think it's the big shift is like how do we continue to have these conversations and build it into our business practices and not just be head in the sand and business as usual because our workplaces are going to suffer long term if we i mean think about the retention and attraction issue right like if you don't have diverse people with diverse ideas and and different backgrounds, you're probably not going to attract really, really smart, intelligent people across the world. I don't know what you think about that, but just an observation. Yes. I think one thing that we always try to do when we're going into an organization is understand where people are right now and meet them where they are. So it is hard to talk about bias. It's hard to talk about your own biases. It's hard to look at your organization and see the way that biases are influencing the representation, the advancement of the people in your organization, and how you play a role in that. That's all really, really difficult. And immediately our brains go into that kind of fight or flight. That's very normal. And so going into these conversations and really thinking about where are you? What are the reasons that you have this pushback? What experience did you have that might make you more resistant to this? What is making you really open to it as well? Did you have a lived experience that you know that this is a problem and how can you share that with other people without being burdened by sort of the requirement to share it. But where are people, where is everybody coming from and how can we develop a conversation in a way that even as facilitators of a session, you know, we're practicing empathy as well. So nobody is bad for having biases. Nobody's bad for having privileges, but 
recognizing those things is such an important first step and being able to say, okay, now I'm going to utilize the privilege that I have to support someone else. Now I'm going to use this awareness of my biases to interrupt it in the conversations that I'm having. So I think those are a few ways to just kind of start nudging the conversation forward and not expecting it to be a, you know, a 180 overnight. It's we say so often in our sessions, like, this is about progress, not perfection. So those are just a few things that I think people can kind of keep in mind as they're developing an ongoing approach to diversity, equity, and inclusion, as opposed to sort of that check the box one and done, because that's where people's walls are going to go up. The one and done checkbox is so, to me, it's top down. It's like, okay, leadership says we need to like do this training and then boom, we got it done. Okay, we're good to go. That's our DEI practices. But I think the managers play a crucial role in this and opening up the lines of communication. And I feel like if people want to bring their whole selves to work, the managers got to play a key role in not only seeking to understand, but just understand what challenges they go through and what they need to do their best work. We are all bringing, a colleague of mine always says like, what's in your backpack? It's like everybody comes to work with whatever they have going on in their personal lives and seeking to understand, I think is pretty important. So how in your mind could managers play a pivotal role in, in seeking to understand, but also really living some of these, not only gender practices, but just overarching inclusion practices? Yeah. So, I mean, I love this question because I think, you know, those one and done experiences, we expect so much from our managers in terms of, you know, especially like I said earlier, those mid-level managers who are really impacting that entry-level workforce, you know, and just that that mid-level, I think we expect so much. And oftentimes research shows that most of those managers don't get much, if any, training on how to actually manage and work with human beings, right? We, we know that. So, you know, it's tricky, right? And I'm not suggesting every company needs to do a complete and utter overhaul, but First and foremost, you know, really underscoring with diversity, equity, and inclusion work, what does it mean to focus on equity versus equality? And as a manager, you know, equity is about understanding the real experience of your individual employees, right? Seeing that employee as a whole person in and outside of work. Because one of the changes that came with the height of the pandemic that I refuse to let go of, and I think most people refuse to let go of, is I am a whole person. I have needs and I have things that I want to accomplish. And some of those are personal, professional. Um, I'm not suggesting that every manager needs to know like the name of every single one of their employees' pets, although I think that rapport goes a long way. Um, but I think, you know, understanding or doing the work to understand, researching, talking to your employees about what they're going through, and also as a manager, continuing to educate yourself. There's research that comes out all the time, you know, articles, get on LinkedIn, start to follow different hashtags, gender equity. You can start to understand the stigma that exists for what is the the stigma that someone might be experiencing if they are requesting or choosing to work from home four days a week and someone else is working from home two days a week. And how does that compound when you're talking about a working mom? What assumptions do we make? And you know, we can talk about maternal bias more in a bit, but, you know, really kind of taking that approach to care about the whole person and think about developing them as a whole person. 
So really equity being, you know, looking at the resources I give to someone based on what they actually need versus equality where I'm giving everyone the same resources, everyone the same amount, right? Equity is is fairness. It's addressing the actual issues, whereas equality is sameness, where we're going to make sure that everyone has the same thing. And we are seeing more and more people shift towards equity. You also can see some resentment that comes along with that. But really for us, when we're working with an organization, equity, we we talk about it in terms that we hope and, and we think and we know that managers can understand, right? The resources that we're giving to our direct reports. These are things like career support, connecting them with mentors and sponsors, high visibility assignments, flexible work arrangements, promotions. So that list can go on and on. When we think about the resources, it's like, what can we provide and what are we gatekeeping? And if you're lucky enough to work for an organization that's going to help you work through biases that you might have, you may realize where some of that comes from. But, you know, everywhere you look in terms of research is going to support the idea that women, especially women of color, trans women, lesbian women, women with disabilities, they have worse experiences at work right? They have less access to support from their supervisors, from the organization as a whole, less and less access to opportunity, getting to know your employees and seeing them as the whole person with all of their diverse identities for such a long time. We tried to have that. You oh, I see everyone is the same. And we just know that that doesn't work, right? We have to address that some of our employees are starting from a lower spot. That's what equity is. And managers have more influence over how their employees perceive their workplace experience than anybody else. Like go survey any of your friends. You don't have to be in HR. If your manager is terrible, your job is terrible. There's really no separating that, right? And that's because within reason, managers have that ability to like really pull the strings on what equitable resource distribution looks like. And there's lots of different ways that I mean, we heavily encourage benchmarking that, tracking the different things that you're trying as the managers. But first, we have found that one of the biggest hurdles is convincing them that it's worth their time to do those things. Because at the end of the day, we're still spinning our wheels and trying to get things done. So it can be it can be a slog, I should say, but like we see it pay off in such big ways when we take that time and, and have that intentionality. I think a lot of these practices, like to your point, they're not only the right thing to do. I think we can all get around that. It's like everybody's coming from a different place and and, and making sure people have what they need and that they're treated fairly. And um, maybe they're coming from behind and they, they need a little extra push. It's the right thing to do, but there's also a business case for it, right? And then you talk about measurement too. So maybe what either of you could jump in at this point, but what's the business case for all this work? You know, why is it good for business? outside of the right thing to do, we know that just treating people as humans. How do we measure the success of these programs as well? Yeah. So I think from a bottom line perspective, there's a lot of research out there. I think probably the most prominent comes from McKinsey and company. They've done kind of three really large studies over time. I think the most recent one was in 2019. And what they find is that companies with higher levels of gender and ethnic diversity outperform their competitors in the same space. So we can then kind of look back and say, well, what are the reasons for that? What are some of the things that help benefit an organization when that diversity is present? And that doesn't need to be diversity in the way that you might typically think about it in terms of gender or racial diversity, but that could also be diversity of backgrounds, not recruiting everyone from the same university or always recruiting from 
a typical career path. When you have people with different perspectives, even in a conversation, it really drives that innovation. There's a lot less of the kind of going with the status quo or going along with that first idea. There's more pushback or ideas are almost more road tested along the way. So that innovation really benefits. And I think that that's one huge way. But even going back to where we started this conversation with that idea of women leaving, you know, I I said, you know, they're not leaving all companies, they're leaving your company. And think about how costly that is to have that turnover. You might have a, a more accurate statistic on this, but I think it's like one and a half to two times someone's salary to replace them. So if you are constantly seeing that turnover, if you're not able to retain women in your organization, you're paying for it. And there's a lot of benefit to really focusing on these things as well. I was going to say part two there in terms of actually measuring the success of the programs that you're implementing. Rachel talked about that idea of benchmarking earlier, but really looking at benchmarks, not only in terms of the high level objectives that you might have for a training or for an initiative, but what are some of the more directional or experiential things in terms of employee engagement or someone's ability or vision to see their advancement within the organization. You can kind of segment those things based on gender, for example, to be able to say who's having a better or worse experience and looking at that over time as well and being able to use that as as a benchmark to see how have the the tools that have been provided, how are they being implemented? How are behaviors changing? And how is that ultimately impacting someone's experience? As we wrap up this discussion, what do you see as the evolution of gender inclusion programs, whether it's training or the way in which we're, our managers are operating inside the organization, but what maybe what trends or shifts are you seeing in the space? Yeah, so we talked a little bit earlier about sort of the current resistance. So I think right now we're in a little bit of a dip in terms of how organizations are kind of approaching these efforts. But what my hope is that there's a demand for this to become a much more embedded and much more normalized piece of the way that we run our organizations. So There's research that shows that younger women, for example, are asking for the same things that we see um, women a little bit more senior in their careers leaving organizations to find. They're looking for that flexibility, that manager support. So if we want to attract that great talent, it needs to become more of the culture in a way. It needs to be something that people are not feeling that push or that resistance to, and that it's definitely not the check the box. So I think it's about driving that empathy. I think that that's going to be such a big part because then it allows each person to take their own initiative to say, this is how I'm going to move forward differently. This is how I'm going to behave differently. And this is how I'm going to push my organization to change their systems as well to reduce bias, reduce that subjectivity, and really be objective in the way that people are able to advance through through the organization. 
Rachel, Kelsey, this has been such a fun discussion. I appreciate you staying so long with me too. This is a this is a great discussion. There's this is not a a, a done conversation either. So you're you're welcome to come back in the future and and have a conversation about this as things are evolving and changing. But uh, I appreciate you both coming on. Where can people learn more about what you're up to? And, and feel free to point any resources or anything that you'd want to share with people as we leave. Thank you for having us. We're obviously super honored to be here and we live for this discussion. So we will be back. Um, I would say that first and foremost, if you are interested, and I say this to the audience, no matter what their position in their company is. So I really feel strongly about this. If you are interested in furthering the place that you work, your organization, maybe it's your own company, your journey towards gender equity, it's integral that you know where to start. And again, I think that this work can start with any employee at, at any level. So way too many organizations take a one-size-fits-all approach. Those are those one-and-done programs or even just kind of going in and using a, a software or a platform that you've seen work for others. But you can't skip the step of doing the internal work and figuring out what's best for you. So we've developed a very simple internal audit that listeners can fill out. So that will just be at our website at guildcollective.com slash start. So guild, it's important to note, is spelled G-I-L-D collective.com slash start. It takes less than five minutes to fill it out. It's a really very few simple questions and you're going to receive a detailed prescription of the best next and, and for some of you first steps your organization can take. And it does the work for you, especially if you're someone who's like, how am I going to get my leaders on board with this? I have no power here. You have more power than you think, but it really gives you those next steps on how to position it with your leadership as well, because that's a big hurdle. You can, of course, find us at our website, guildcollective.com, and you'll find information on our gender inequity simulator there, our leadership and inclusion trainings, along with many other amazing resources on our resource page. So, um, you know, things that can really help for bringing that transformative change to your teams. Amazing. Thank you both for coming on and sharing so much knowledge. I appreciate both of you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having us. Thank you. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed are the guest's own and do not represent the views, thoughts, and opinions of ZenMHR or the host, Brandon Laws. The material and information presented on Transform Your Workplaces for general information and educational purposes only. Zenium HR or the host, Brandon Laws, does not necessarily endorse any guest, their business, or any organization they represent. Discretion is advised. Please work with a trusted advisor to find a custom approach that fits your organization's needs.